1969, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel gave a lecture on prayer. And in the middle of that lecture, he talks about prayer as song. I'll read just, just a bit of it. Worship is more than paying homage. To worship is to join the cosmos in praising God. The whole cosmos, every living being, sings, the psalmist insists. Neither joy nor sorrow, but song is the ground plan of being. It is the quintessence of life. To praise is to call forth the promise and presence of the divine. We live for the sake of a song. And that's the line I, I want to underscore. We live for the sake of a song. We praise for the privilege of being. Worship is the climax of living. There is no knowledge without love, no truth without praise. At the beginning was the song. And praise is man's response to the never-ending beginning. We live for the sake of a song, and at the beginning was the song. Oh, with that in mind, I want to come to the readings for this second Sunday of Advent and begin with the canticle of Zechariah, the song of Zechariah, the priest who has been silenced because of his doubts. And now, at the birth of his son, is filled with the Spirit, and in being filled with the Spirit, becomes a prophet. So the priest becomes a prophet. His silence is broken with the song, which is in the reading for Sunday, Luke 1, 68-79. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets, he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us, to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this, this song, of course, that last line, Jesus picks up at the, at the end of Luke, Luke's gospel when he's grieving over Jerusalem because they did not know the, the ways that the ways of peace, the things that make for peace. But I, I want to draw attention to this song as a song in which Zechariah as the priest prophet is singing about God's faithfulness to the fathers by the goodness of God in the lives of the son. You, my child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High. I think all of the readings this week are held together by that confidence that God's faithfulness is generational and intergenerational. God's faithfulness to the fathers is working out in the lives of the sons. God's faithfulness to the mothers is working out in the lives of the daughters. And God's faithfulness to us as sons and daughters is already been prepared by what has happened between God and our fathers and mothers. So before before I kind of 
delve more deeply into that, let let me reflect for just a moment on what it means to prepare the way, because that's that's the promise, right? That that John will prepare the way of the Lord. I, I think it it's easy to to miss the irony there, because the Lord needs no one to prepare His way. I mean that this is what makes the Lord the Lord, is that that He comes and no one can keep Him from coming, right? That He creates out of his own freedom. He saves by grace. He he acts without waiting to be given room to act. I mean, that, that's what creation and salvation are, the initiative of the free God. So what does it mean then to prepare the way for a God whose ways are not our ways and a God who does not need his way, pre- his, his way prepared? And I think we need to ask too, do we, in fact, want this God to come? We'll see in the other readings, the Old Testament reading in particular, that this the coming of God is, if not threatening or worrisome, at least perplexing and challenging. So do we, do we in fact, want God to come? And what does it mean to talk about preparing the way for this God to come? No, with that in mind, let's turn then to the Old Testament text, as I said, and then I'll come back to Zechariah's song. Malachi 3 is one of the Old Testament readings. There's also one from Baruch, but I'll I'll focus on Malachi in these reflections. See, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. So this is the prophet Malachi speaking the word of the Lord to Israel. And of course, Zechariah in his song is picking up Malachi's prophecy and identifying his own son, John, as the prophet who is the messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So you notice there's this way in which there's a a kind of paradox. The messenger will prepare the way, but the Lord will come suddenly. And the Lord is the one we're seeking. We don't seek the messenger. The messenger prepares the way. And the Lord appears suddenly, even though his way has been prepared. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Who can endure and who can stand? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And so here we have again that theme of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, generational work of God, and the the awesomeness and the quote-unquote threat of the coming of God. He will come like a refiner's fire and come like a fuller's soap. And he will refine and cleanse until they, the descendants of Levi, present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So the Lord will come. His coming will be terrible. It will be refining and purifying. It will break all that needs to be broken and cleanse all that needs to be cleansed. And then that will make possible the offerings of the descendants of Levi, that then make the offering singular of Judah and Jerusalem, the people of God, pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of the beginnings, the days of old, the days of the fathers, and in particular the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
a quick note about this text, and I'm sure you can see all kinds of connections that I'm not going to draw, but I, I, I think it's important to underscore the fact that God comes both as refiner's fire and as fuller's soap. And I, I heard a terrific sermon years ago that talked about the ways in which the refiner's fire is forceful, is painful, is damaging in a sense. It, it's intense. But the fuller soap is gentler and is that these two metaphors speak to the ways in which God's work in our lives, God's purifying, sanctifying work in our lives can be forceful or gentle. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I, I think what the text is stressing is that God purifies us in ways that are in keeping with our nature, right? So obviously the difference between the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap is that they both have the same end, which is to cleanse, to make to make ready, to make whole and pure. But the fire is for the metals, the precious metals, and the, the soap is for the cloth. And I, I think we can talk about it in terms of God's work in our lives, the, the ways in which God can be forceful or gentle. You know, the, that wonderful line about how he will not break how does it run? That he will not snuff out the, the smoking flax or or break the bruised reed. That there, there's a kind of infinite gentleness to what God is doing. But there also can be a, a kind of infinite forcefulness to what God is doing. And of course, we know that they are one. But I, I think what I'd like to stress here is the ways in which that forcefulness and gentleness in our lives is it's not fitted to something like God's moods. I mean, God is not moody. God does not shift back and forth from one way of feeling to another. He doesn't act in our lives in ways that are like dependent on the way... He's not reacting, right? He doesn't act in our lives in reactionary ways. God's acts in our lives are fitted to, to the nature of our being, to, to what's true in our lives. So there are aspects of my life that are, we might say precious metals, it's gold, silver, and the purifying work of God, the forcefulness of the work of God happens to the gold and silver in me in order to bring about purity and wholeness. And then there are other parts of me that are that are softer, that are easily torn, the, the cloth of me, so, so the, the softer aspects of my being, and God knows how to gently cleanse me. But in both cases, there is cleansing and purifying. And that cleansing and purifying continues until it becomes possible for my offerings to be pure. Until I'm, I've been purified in such a way that I become purifying, right? That my presence becomes cleansing for others, right? And we shouldn't think here moralistically. This is not about driving out simply about driving out the sins of the flesh, you know, greed and lust and gluttony and so on. This is about cleansing the wounds, right? This is about cleansing away the hurts and ridding ourselves of the bitterness that comes when we've been wronged or wounded by others. So that when we talk about having a purifying presence or a clean presence and cleansing presence, we're not simply talking about moral purity or sinlessness. We're talking about 
being present to people in ways that do not dirty their lives, do not do not leave them feeling smudged, you know, that there's a kind of cleanness to the way that we engage others. And our presence becomes, because of the presence of the God who's cleansing us, our presence becomes purifying and cleansing for others in which, you know, we're, we are listening to people and speaking to people and speaking with people in such a way that clarity is coming for them, right? That engagement with us, one of the marks, I think, that the Spirit is at work in our lives is that when we are engaging with others, our children, our spouses, our friends, strangers, the people that we're we're caring for and ministering to, that what comes of time with us is more clarity for them. Right? So I, I think that's what it means to present offerings to the Lord that make the offering of the people of God pleasing to God. Right, so that our offerings, whatever whatever small things we're doing day to day, to bring clarity into people's lives, to bring cleanness into people's lives, is then making it possible for the whole people of God to offer that one offering back to God that is truly pleasing. And so, with with, with that said, I want to come to the New Testament reading, which is Philippians one, and notice how Paul embodies that what I've just been describing. Philippians 1, 3 to 11. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I, I don't know that Paul could honestly say this about everyone in all of his churches, but it does seem to be, there, there's a ring of authenticity to the letter of Philippians, and it does seem that that this community did in fact refresh him, did in fact, did in fact bring cleansing and cleanness to him, and and he is able to to give that back to them. So he says, "I'm I'm confident of this that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ." Right. So it's it's, it's a familiar passage, and of course, it's a promise we cling to. Right. That God begins a work, He finishes it. Right. God God does not start anything that He does not bring to the best possible end. But I think it's it's worth underscoring at this point in, in, in light of these other texts that this does remind us that God's work takes time and not just the times of the seasons of our lives, but epics, ages, that God's work is intergenerational, that it reaches across enormous spaces and enormous spans of time. And so this this is a promise and one we should cling to. God will finish the work he started. But it's also a reminder that God takes time to finish the work that he starts. God is in no hurry. You know, again, that that line from the Deschardins poem, above all trust in the slow work of God. So Paul says, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. And I want to underscore, again, just highlight, embolden these words for you. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. So what you see here in Malachi, the purifying work of the Spirit makes us into purifying spirits, right? That we... As, as the Spirit purifies us, we become not only pure, but also purifying presences. And that's what's happening here for Paul. 
He's longing for the Philippians with the longings of God, right? The, the compassion of Christ, the ways that you remember in the Gospels, we're told again and again that Christ is moved. His guts are wrenched because of compassion. His, he's, he's moved. The bowels of his compassion are moved. And, and Paul is longing with that same longing, right? Not one like it. Paul is not simply saying, I long for you in the way that Christ longs for you, but that he's longing for you with the longing of Christ, right? The compassion of Christ has become his compassion, that he, he truly is a fellow sufferer with Christ, suffering not only alongside Christ, but suffering in Christ and inside of Christ and Christ's suffering inside of him. And out of that affection, God's affection for the Philippians embodied in Christ that Paul shares comes this prayer. And this is my prayer. He says that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day, so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless. Right? So out of this longing, out of this desire that he shares with Christ and that Christ has shared with him, he is praying that they will be purified. And so he's He's longing for them to have the same purity that Christ has. And again, not just purity from the dirty sins of, of the body, the sins of sex and, and food and violence, but purity that makes us like Christ. Not you know, you so those of you who've heard me speak before know that I, I I often come back to this theme that holiness is not morality. Like holiness is just as far removed from morality as it is from immorality. And that the call to sanctification is not a call to sinlessness, but a call to Christ-likeness. So the purity here, the cleanness here, is not simply sinlessness, and certainly not simply the sin, sinlessness as it regards sins of the body. This is about a, a kind of pure-heartedness and wholeheartedness, a singleness of purpose that is... The full embodiment of love, right? The the realization in every aspect of our lives of the peace and justice of God, and and that's what Paul is longing for for them. So that said, I, I want to again come back to this theme of how long God takes to bring that about, right? That in my life, of course, the prayer I I I'm praying for myself and for my kids and for my my wife and for for all of you, is that we will be pure in the way that God is pure, right? That we will be purified by the fire and the soap so that we are, in every aspect of our being, clean, clear, whole. And yet we have to remember that God takes time to bring that about, right? That God, God is not in a rush. And that, I think, is the wisdom of this song, right? That Zechariah sings. He's he's silenced, as you remember. Let's go back to Luke 1 for a moment. He's silenced, you remember, because of his doubts. Right? He he just he should know the story better than he knows it. So when the angel appears and says, you know, your prayers have been heard, which by the way, striking point, that we we can pray prayers that are heard, even though those prayers are not pure. Right? Zachariah's prayers aren't pure. They're, they're smudged, dirtied by these doubts. Even if they're, they're doubts that are relatively weak, 
almost petty. They they don't they're not the doubts are not strong enough to keep him from praying, but they do again keep his prayer from being whole. And and yet it's still heard, right? God hears our impure prayers. And I, I know, you know, we often talk about that passage in James, right? You you have not because you ask not, or because you ask amiss to consume these things on your own lusts. And, and of course, I do think there are prayers God does not hear in the sense that God gracefully ignores what we're saying because he knows we don't actually mean what we're saying. Anyone who loves us knows how to do that, how to ignore us for our own good. But I, I don't think we should ever assume that our prayers have to be perfectly pure to be heard. Zacharias are not, and yet they're heard. Zacharias and Elizabeth's Elizabeth's prayers might have been pure. Zacharias are not, and yet they're heard. And he's told, you will have a son. There will be great rejoicing. Your son will, will prepare the way of the Lord. And this is a, a key line, by preparing a people for him. And yet Zechariah does not believe. He should have, because he should have known that this story that's happening to him and Elizabeth is a story that happened over and over again, beginning with the fathers, beginning with Abraham and Sarah. And that's why when he when he finally is freed by the birth of his son and the and the the eruption of the spirit in his life, the the words that come out of his mouth are words of blessing to God. He sings to God, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And he's reminding himself and reminding everyone who can hear him and reminding his son that he's singing about the past into the future. And he's singing specifically about the God of Israel, the God who's been faithful, the God who brought David up and is now bringing up a son of David, the God of the prophets of old, and the God of our father, Abraham. And that that shows the ways in which through this experience, his prayers are being purified. And the silence that that is imposed upon him is not a punishment, but is a cleansing correction. That the silence that's imposed on him cleanses his prayer, purifies his prayer. It's a, it is, I, I think this is a good example of the fuller soap, right? He's not struck dead. He's not struck dumb permanently. He's simply silenced for a time. There's a, a kind of gentle washing of his faith, free of these doubts that made it so that he, he demanded a, a kind of accounting on how can this be? Explain to me how this will happen. And all of that, that has dirtied his faith, that has corrupted his prayer, is washed away gently in this, in this silence. And so when the song bursts forth, it bursts forth in this new purity, in recalling God's faithfulness to the past, and specifically the, the ways in which what God is doing now in the present, and what God is about to do in the future, is in fact for the sake of our fathers, that God will show mercy to our fathers. And so I come back to those questions that I asked in the beginning. How do we prepare the way for a God whose ways are not our ways and who does not need a way prepared for him? And do we in fact want God to come, given that God comes as fire, that God comes as cleansing? Yes, we do want God to come because the, our preparing the way for God to come is already the coming of God, right? The God who does not need his way prepared is at work in those of us who are preparing the way for his coming 
by preparing us to be the people who can receive the God who comes, who can, who can house and be at home with the God who wants to make his home among us. So our, we're, we're not preparing the way for an absent God. We're not preparing the way so that once the way is prepared, God can be present. We, our works of preparation, are already the, the work of the present God who's making his own way with us and in us and in cooperation with us, empowering us to be what he is to others. And that coming is, that preparing, I should say, is already the, the coming of God, right? The, the, we're, we're not simply preparing for an advent that will have to happen afterward. The preparing is the coming. Right? It is the breaking, breaking forth. And, and I, I think once we get that, we understand that while God is always working to cooperate with us, right? We don't, we don't believe that God's action is ever in competition with ours, right? So it's, it's not as if God does some work and we do other work. And it's certainly not the case that we have to do some work first before God can do his work. But it is that God collaborates with us non-competitively, right? So that God is working and we are working. This is what Paul will say to the Philippians, right? Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, right? So the, the work of God in us as we prepare the way for God to come is already the coming of the God whose way we are preparing. And we make that preparation through prayers and shared compassion. That, that I think, is what we hear in Paul's words, that we prepare the way for God to come into the lives of others by sharing in the gut-wrenching compassion of Christ for others. That when we start to feel the longing of God, when we start to care about others with the very cares of God, then we give birth to prayers. Prayers are formed in us and rise from us that are prayers for their purification, prayers for their cleanness, prayers for their clarity and wholeness, prayers for, for their sanctification and perfection. But again, and I want to keep returning to this theme, this takes time. This takes time. And if we're going to understand the God of Israel, the God of David, the God of Abraham, the God of Zechariah, the God of Paul, we have to understand that God is always acting on all creatures. So we, we, cannot, we cannot think about this rightly if we think about a timeline and we think about God's work as always immediately present to whatever point on the timeline we happen to be living. Right? So it's not as if God is active in my life now, but not yet in my future and not in my past anymore. The fact is, God is always fully present to every point of the timeline. That's why there is a timeline at all. So that everything that's happening in my life now, right now, everything God is doing for me and for you right now, is inseparably bound up with what God did and will do. And that's why Zechariah sings that God has in this miraculous birth, in, in the, the calling of his son, John, to be the prophet of the Most High who prepares the way of the Lord. God has shown mercy to our fathers. So with that said, let's come to the gospel text. 
which is Luke 3. And we're told that we're kind of given the context. It's the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. Herod's the ruler of Galilee. His brother Philip is a ruler in other, other cities. And we get reference to the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So you kind of get a political setting, right? Reminds me of like Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, right? We're getting a kind of, here, here are the political statuses. This is the this is the state of things, and in the midst of that, the word of God comes to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so, so much that Luke is doing here. One is to say that the word of God comes not to these centers of power, either the temple or the governor's palace or the king's palace. the The word of God comes to the prophet in the wilderness, the prophet whose father had sung the song of promise over him. And in the wilderness, John begins to speak. And what he speaks is the word of the prophet Isaiah. So when Zechariah sings his song, he's singing into the future. He's singing over his son, about his fathers, the, the prophets of old, the sons of Abraham, the sons of David. And so when John receives the word of the Lord, what comes out of John, this new voice that's preparing the way for the new work of God, is in fact simply the old voice the voice of the prophet Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and so on. I think it's worth noticing, though, that we don't know how we get from Zechariah's song to John's sermon. We, we don't have an account. You know, we often talk about the silent years of Jesus' life, right? How we get from Christmas to Epiphany. We have that one glimpse in the Gospel of Luke of him as he, of Jesus as a young man in the temple, his parents losing him for a few days. But mostly Jesus' life from the very beginning until his moment of calling at his baptism, like most of that is hidden from us. And and the same is true for John, right? That we we have the song of his father, a song of promise, a, a prophetic song. And then we have his sermon, his prophetic sermon that breaks out, which is not his sermon, but is the sermon of Isaiah. We don't know how we get from A to Z, so to speak. And again, that's a testimony to the ways in which God's work is always hidden to one degree or another. Right? God's work is always hidden. Sometimes it's more hidden than others. And we might catch a glimpse here and there. We're never going to see in full. So there, there's always hiddenness to what God is doing. But here there's almost, there's just a gap, right? There's a chasm between that, his father's song and his own sermons. And yet it has happened just as the Lord has promised, right? The word of the Lord comes to him. And I, I think what it does, what the word of the Lord does when it comes to him is it ignites the seeds, to, to mix my metaphors, it ignites the seeds that his father's song had planted. And what had happened to him, to Zechariah, is now happening to John, Zechariah's son. Because Zechariah, as I said, the silence has kind of cleansed the, the impurities from his prayers, from his faith. And so when, when the Spirit rests on him, when the Spirit ignites him, then all of the seeds of the story of Israel, all of the, the seeds of the story of Abraham, the seeds of the story of David, and the seeds of the story of Sarah and 
the seeds of the story of the pro the stories of the prophets all of those are they burst into life and what comes from him is song and this song that testifies to the god who's faithful to our fathers and faithful to our fathers even in their doubts and so i want to i want to end by stressing this point what zechariah learns in his silence and what john learns at the end of his life too and i we won't take time with that but you know the story is that god's purifying work takes time it works mostly in secret it ignites these seeds that have been long planted in us but god's faithfulness to us is not in response to our faithfulness and it's not in response to the faithfulness of our fathers alone that the word of the lord that comes to john in the wilderness is a word that was coming even though his father had doubts and I would argue, because his father has, has doubts. Go back to that line in Zechariah's song. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his covenant, his holy covenant. And this is what he swore, to set us free from the hands of our enemies so that we could worship him without fear. I, I'll, I'll be doing a, a podcast in the next week or so, hopefully, on this notion of worshiping God without fear and the ways in which American Christianity has, has kind of perverted that notion. But for now, I want to keep attention on this promise to show mercy to our fathers. And so in, in, in conclusion, I, I want to, to sit with that. And I want to invite you to sit with it, that the goodness of God in your life and the goodness of God in the life of your children is not simply for your sake and their sake and it's certainly not a response to your good behavior or a reward for your faithfulness that the goodness of god in your life is a mercy he's showing to those who for you are long dead or at least are in your past your fathers some of your fathers are still living and there are all kinds of ways no and and here i'm using fathers in the in the encompassing sense right not only your your biological fathers but and and not only the men in your lives but all of those people in your life who were responsible for you responsible to bring you not only into life but to give you the wisdom you needed to live life as you're meant to live it to to prepare for you to prepare a way for you to to live the way of the Lord. And they failed, right? Just as we will fail. Not perhaps totally failed, but failed at least in part. And the purifying work of God in their lives, the mercy that cleanses the impurities, either through fire or through soap, that is what's playing out in your life and in mine. So that what's happening to me, the, the Spirit's work in me, it's not just about me. It's about my father, my mother, my grandparents, my mentors, my teachers. It's about all of those who've gone before me. And that is true for my children as well. And when I can trust that, when I, when I can yield to that and recognize 
that God's work in my life, even though it is always also for me, it's always personal, it's always God knowing me and wanting to be known by me, it's never simply and only that, then I I can learn to sing what Zachariah sang, right? I, I, can, I can sing in the way that Rabbi Heschel talks about singing. As he says, we live for the sake of a song. At the beginning was this song, the song, and our praise is a response to that never-ending beginning. Earlier in the in the lecture, he he speaks he he draws on this metaphor of song to talk about the ways in which the world is waiting for that. He he this is it's an incredible lecture. You should definitely read it all. But but listen to the ways in which he names the song that needs to be sung. I pray because God the Shekinah is an outcast. I pray because God is an exile, because we all conspire to blur all signs of his presence in the present or in the past. I pray because I refuse to despair, because extreme denials and defiance are refuted in the confrontation of my own presumption and the mystery all around me. I pray because I am unable to pray. And suddenly I am forced to do what I seem unable to do, even the callousness to the mis- even callousness to the mystery is not immortal. There are moments when the clamor of all sirens dies, presumption is depleted, and even the bricks in the walls are waiting for a song. So this is uh, so many allusions here, but I'm thinking of Jericho, right? That the walls that are surrounding us, that keep us in in ways that are are enslaving and keep us out in ways that are oppressive. Those walls are waiting for a song. The door is closed. The key is lost. Yet the new sadness of my soul is about to open the door. Right. So you, you have, again, this language of sharing God's affections, longing as God longs, longing with God's longing, aching with Christ's gut-wrenching ache. Some souls are born with a scar, Heschel says. Others are endowed with anesthesia. Satisfaction with the world is base and the ultimate callousness. The remedy for absurdity is still to be revealed. The irreconcilable opposites which agonize human existence are the outcry, the prayer. Every one of us is a cantor. Every one of us is called to intone a song, to put into prayer the anguish of all. And that, that, I believe, is the word of the Lord for us in Advent. It's a time to learn to sing the song of the prophets, to intone the anguish of God for the sake of our fathers who failed us, for the sake of our mothers who were not faithful, so that God's purifying work in our lives is not only purifying us and those who will come after us, but is also merciful to those who've gone before us. And that becomes possible when we ache with the ache of God. So let me pray for you. It's easy for us to say, God, and impossible for us to live apart from you living and in us. But we do want, we do want to collaborate with you in the mercy you're showing to our fathers. 
And we know what that means, even though we, of course, don't at all know what that means. But we do invite you, knowing that even our invitation is already possible because you've invited us. It's already only possible because you've invited us. Share your ache with us. Sow the seeds of your anguish into us. And let the Spirit rain down fire on those seeds. Amen.